we came to hear from God, and we came to hear from his word. So let's pray together as we open up God's word. God, thank you for revealing yourself uh, through Jesus, your son, and through your written word. And God, now we open your Bible. ask that you would speak to us and open our eyes and open our ears so that we might behold wonderful things from your law today. In the name of Christ, the people of God, together with enthusiasm, said, amen. With enthusiasm, said, that's what we're talking about. All right, if you got your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 8. We're going to finish chapter 8 today. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. Uh, you can use your device. There's free Wi-Fi in here. It's just Bayview Wi-Fi. You can look on with a neighbor. I know there's a lot of people kind of squished together here, so you can look on with a neighbor. If they offer you some gum, take it. And uh, if you don't have a Bible or can't get one, the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen, so you can follow along. Remember what we're doing here in John chapter 7 and 8. John, who is a disciple of Jesus, started running around with Jesus when he was about 13, 14 years old. By the time he's in his 90s, he sits down and writes a biography of the life of Jesus. And one of the situations that he begins to talk about is when Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's at what's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Booths. And it's taken us about six or seven months, honestly, to teach through this entire discourse and this entire conversation with Jesus and the religious leaders. It's funny to me that it takes us a whole lot longer to teach through it than it did to actually happen, but that's beside the point. And so what we're going to do is finish this conversation today at the end of chapter 8, because at the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus leaves the temple and the context changes and the setting changes. And so what we're going to try to do is kind of wrap a bow around, tie a bow on uh, this conversation that Jesus has with the religious leaders and, and to kind of uh, summarize this whole thing. There's a lot that happens here, a lot of detail, a lot of theology, lots going on. But if you're jotting down notes, here, here's our summary statement, is that Jesus is attempting to move these religious leaders away from the law and towards grace. This is what he's doing. He's calling them. He's coaxing them. He, he's wooing them, even in a sense. He's encouraging and exhorting them. And what he wants to do is take apart their notions of how they impress God, live up to God's standards, live up to God's expectations, or how they feel that they do, and say, that's not accurate, that's not true, but God's grace is so good, it's so rich, and it's so wonderful, and I'm calling you out of that life of law into a law of grace. And this is so offensive to the religious leaders extraordinarily offensive to the religious leaders. We'll talk, talk about why it's so offensive here in a minute, but I want to show you the evidence of, of the fact that they are offended by Jesus calling them out of law and into grace because what happens is they begin to insult him. They begin to insult him, and, and it's pretty nasty insults, to be honest with you. Look, here's the first one. It's in John chapter 8. It's, so the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. On three, everybody tell me, what did they just call Jesus? One, two, three, a liar. They called him a liar just because he's calling him out of law and into grace. And then they say, uh, will you kill it? Will he kill himself? The Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus looks at them and says, hey, where I'm going, you can't come. And what he's talking about is the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are not going to go there. But they assume that what Jesus means is that he's going to take his own life, which he does not. But in first century Hebrew mindset, if somebody took their own life, they would end up in the deepest, darkest recess of hell, never to be seen or heard from again. And so they're saying, well, you're going to take your own life. Well, the only way we're never going to see you again is if you take your own life. So we're just assuming you're going to kill yourself. I mean, that's not a very nice thing to say, is it? 
So listen what else they say to him. They, They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Do you see what they're doing here? They've already done it once in this chapter. They said, where is your dad? Jesus, where is your dad? Remember, because Jesus' mom was about 13 or 14, she was engaged, and she got pregnant. And we say, how'd you get pregnant? He said, I've never slept with anybody in my life, never had sex. Sure, sure. And so everybody knew and was aware that Jesus' mother, Mary, claimed to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I mean, if somebody came into our midst today, and you asked him, oh, how'd you get pregnant? Like, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon me. You'd be like, no, no, that doesn't happen. And so what they're insinuating here is that Jesus' mom slept around. This is a first century version of a yo mama joke. Like, this is, this is not good, what they're saying to Jesus. This is very insulting. And then finally, they get to the epitome. Like, this is the nastiest thing they could possibly say to him. Look, the Jews answered him, are we not in, right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Like, if you're a Bible fan, this is funny to you. And if you're not, you're like, I thought the Samaritan was good. Isn't there a story about the good Samaritan? This was a nasty thing to say for Jews in, in first century Hebrew culture. Are you, you are, you're Samaritan and, and you have a demon. This is where we start our passage today in chapter 8, verse 48. And watch how Jesus responds. I love this. Verse 49. It says, Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. That means the heavenly father is seeking the glory of the son, Jesus. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, here's one thing. I just want to pause here. It's not exactly what we're talking about this morning. But I just want to note this for us. That Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, would later write a letter that says that any time people insulted him, when they reviled him, when they accused him, Jesus responded with tenderness and kindness, or even a lot of times just kept his mouth shut. Don't you love the fact that they just let him have it? I mean, they just absolutely lit him up. And instead of Jesus coming back at them, instead of Jesus undressing them in front of everybody there verbally, I mean, instead of telling them everything that these guys have ever done or whatever, he just responds, neutral statement of fact, says, look, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. I love Jesus' tenderness, by the way. I really do. Because if you just made a comment about my mama, that's probably not how I'm going to respond. Or if you just called me a demon, I'm probably not going to respond with that level of tenderness. But Jesus does. So here's how the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, respond. They say, now we know you have a demon. Oh, my gosh. This is ridiculous. Okay, Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Go back one slide. We skipped something. Yeah. So truly, truly, I say to you, anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So here's what Jesus is claiming, just so we know. We'll go back to that slide here in a minute. He's claiming that if you do what he says, if you listen and obey, if you listen and respond, you're never going to die. You'll never see death. That's what he's claiming. So the Jews ask a really legitimate question. Now, next slide. They ask a really legitimate question. He says, now we know you have a demon because you're claiming that if you trust me, you will never die. I mean, that's got to be something weird and wicked and evil speaking out of you. You've got to have a demon because Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? 
Who do you make yourself out to be? Now, we got to unpack this just a little bit because we have to understand kind of the culture and the history and where these guys are coming from and what types of questions that they're asking. The first thing that we need to note is that they invoke the name of Abraham. They invoke the name of Abraham. For those of you who know who Abraham is and what he did, this might be review for you, but remember, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. God called him when God decided to start a family, a people for his own possession. He called Abraham out of a pagan land, probably polytheistic, by the way, and revealed himself as the one and only true God and promised Abraham that he would start a nation, that he would start a family through Abraham, that he would give him a son and his descendants, Abraham's descendants, would be be as many as the sands on the seashore, that would be as many as the stars in the sky. And Abraham responded by saying, ha, 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 I'm 90. So's my wife. Apparently, you're not really sure how this whole thing works, having children. God said, yeah, I am sure how it works. I invented it. And you are going to have a child. And they named him Isaac, which means laughter, because they laughed at God. And then Isaac had children, and they became as many as the sand on the seashore and as many as the stars in the sky. And those descendants of Abraham became the nation of Israel. And when God made that covenant with Abraham, he made that promise of giving him a child and giving him descendants, he chose circumcision as an external representation of the covenant that happened internally. He chose circumcision as an external representation of the covenant that happened internally. This is something God does throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. He chooses external things to represent internal realities. Now, I don't know about you. If I was Abraham and I was 90 and God said, here's what you get as the external representation of the internal reality, my response would be, okay, Noah got a rainbow. Can we do that rather than circumcision? Because this might sting. I just, I always like, I always wonder like God, because this is the first time this word circumcision is used, right? So God promises to Abraham, as many of the sands on the seashore, and here's what's going to be, this external representation is going to be circumcision. And, and Abraham goes, what's, what's that word? I've never heard that word before. What does that mean? And God goes, well, I'm going to take a sharp rock. And he's, oh my gosh, this is like, I just could imagine Abraham passing out or throwing up or something like that. And if you're uncomfortable with this conversation, I promise it's going to get even more uncomfortable here in a minute. So Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel, the father of the Jewish race, and circumcision was the external symbol of that internal covenant, that internal reality that God made with Abraham. And what these uh, individuals say that are descendants of Abraham, these religious leaders, is that Abraham died. Even Abraham, even the greatest patriarch of the, of the nation of Israel, the very first one, the one whom God chose to start his family, even he died. Who do you think you are? I mean, this is a legitimate question, right? Legitimate, legitimate question. Jesus, who do you think you are? You're going to die. You can't promise that people aren't going to die because even the greatest of the great, Abraham, died. Are you better than him? Are you claiming you're greater than him? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It's my Father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. Again, so tender. Look, I'm not trying to exalt myself. It's God that's exalting me. And watch what Jesus says. I love this. He says, if I told you, next slide, if I told you I didn't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, now this would have blown their minds just a little bit because remember, Abraham is generations and generations and generations ago, literally thousands of years before this. This would have absolutely blown their mind because they're going, okay, Abraham rejoiced that he would see your day or he saw your day and it made him glad. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? You're not yet 50 years old. Next slide. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Like he's probably like 31, 32 about this time. And like you, you, you're, not even, you're not even 50. Abraham existed generations ago. Now watch what Jesus says. I love this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. This word I am is so critical here. In the original Greek, it's ego emi. In the Old Testament Hebrew, it's eye asher eye. When God, the one true God, is asked what your name is, this is how he responds. Eye, asher, eye, translated into Greek, ego, emi, translated into English, I am who I am. Jesus is clearly claiming that he is God in the flesh. There is no way around it. And he is claiming that he can move them from the law into grace because he is God incarnate. You want to know how I know that Jesus is making a very clear claim here? That no Nobody is confused. He's not mincing words. Nobody's going, oh, are you just a good prophet or a good teacher or something like that? This is why I know. Because the immediate thing that they do is they pick up rocks because they want to throw them at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They recognize it immediately as blasphemy. Like if I came in here on a Sunday morning, I'm like, I'm God in the flesh. You guys, you are nuts. You're nuts. You might not pick up rocks. At least I hope not. But you probably... Get me in a little room with a really tight jacket on or something. <laughs> they call me crazy, right? Like, they immediately know this is blasphemy. They immediately know what Jesus is claiming. And their insult turns into attempt to injure and even kill. They'll be successful pretty soon. But remember... The bow on John 7 and 8, and that's the end of chapter 8 there. Here here it is. Here's the summary statement is that Jesus is moving the, the Pharisees from law to grace. And he's moving us from law to grace. Here's the thing about the law. The law in the Old Testament was God's covenant that kind of governed his people, that kind of helped them to shape their lives. It was God's gracious commandments and instructions. And what happened was that the religious leaders and then even the whole nation of Israel began to kind of warp their understanding of the law. Instead of going, God has given this to us as part of his grace to help shape our lives, to help uh, kind of shape total human flourishing. He's given it to us instead so that we can tick as many boxes as possible and live up to his expectations. That's what that's for. And Paul will come along, Jesus will come along, and the rest of the New Testament authors will come along and say, that is not what it's for. But that's how they understood the law. The Pharisees, in fact, would add 700 of their own laws in addition to the hundreds that are in the Old Testament already to say that we are righteous, we are good, we are acceptable to God because we meet the expectations of the law. And circumcision now, circumcision 
was kind of the representative. It was the penultimate. It was the kind of the start of the law because that was God's covenant with Abraham. And the reason why it is so challenging for the Pharisees to be ripped from law and into a life of grace is the law is all about you, whereas grace is all about God. The law is all about you, whereas grace is all about God. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to understand where the Pharisees are coming from, and then we're going to apply it to our own hearts and lives, which is going to be difficult. But check it out. When it comes to the law, you set the bar. You set the bar. If you're living under law, you set the bar. So, so I have to be, I, in order to be saved, I have to meet this level of expectation. You get to set that bar. You get to set the bar of morality. It's up to you. I'm just going to hit mute on this. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think who, <laughs> I'm trying to think if I should tell you who called who just now. <laughs> I should, shouldn't I? I'm going on sabbatical tomorrow. What do I, what do I care? Uh, that was our youth pastor, Brandon Bernard, calling our worship pastor, Andy Cherry, in the middle of a sermon. Grace, somebody said grace. <laughs> oh, shoot, you're both fired. Um, and I, I tell you what, uh, even one of these conversations that I've had with John Havercroft and with, with the elder board about this sabbatical, um, I, I, this is, this is, a, this is a, the way I put it. It's really easy to hand over the keys to your favorite vehicle when you trust the driver. And our staff, Andy Cherry, Brand Bernard, Andy Notice, uh, Kevin, Carmen, so many others, I, I can name all their names, they are remarkable and extraordinary. And this next 10 weeks is gonna be awesome. And I'm so excited for them, despite the little mishap just then. Um, I, I really love those guys. They're friends and fantastic people. So let's get back to the passage. When it comes to the law, you set the bar. I don't know if you've ever heard people say this, but, but you know, they say, like, how, how do you know you're going to get to heaven? And they tell you that they're going to get to heaven because of the good that they've done and the bad that they've avoided. And a lot of times it's, it comes out this way. Well, look, I'm no Hitler. I'm no Hitler. That's a pretty low bar, don't you think? Like, well, I'm no Pol Pot. Great. Like, you're not expected to be, right? Or, or we, like, we compare ourselves to the guy down the row from us and the cubicle down the row from us or the student that sits by us in class. And we notice all the bad things they do and all the immorality that they engage in. We go, I don't engage in that stuff, so I'm going to heaven. See, you set the bar. You're in complete control of the bar. But when it comes to grace, God sets the bar. God sets the bar. Morality and the definition of righteousness and goodness comes from the outside, not from the inside. And just so you know, this is a bar that we will never live up to. You can't obey the whole law. God sets the bar when it comes to grace. And when it comes to the law, you're in control. 
You're in control. If you are trying to impress God by your righteousness, by your goodness, by doing what you feel like is expected, uh, trying to meet this standard, you are in total control. You're in control of your behavior. You're in control of the consequences. You're in control. You're in total control. No control belongs to God. You are in control. That's an illusion, by the way. That's not real, but you feel that you're in control. But when it comes to grace, God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in control of whether or not you meet his expectations. God is in control of whether or not you are acceptable to him. And see, here's the thing. When it comes to the law, you become your own savior really quick. You save yourself, which results in pride and arrogance, doesn't it? I did enough. I lived up to expectations. I did good stuff. I was righteous. I gave money away. I was kind to somebody. Hey, I'm no Hitler. Right? And for that reason, God accepts me. And God enters into the picture. Jesus enters into the picture. And he says, that was not what the law was for to begin with. The law was only meant to set the bar for you and help you understand that you're never going to meet the expectations. You're never going to be able to save yourself. And under grace, God saves you. God saves you. God is in control. He sets the bar. He's in total control. And you see why Jesus coaxing the Pharisees and exhorting the Pharisees out from living under the law and into living under grace is so difficult because they've got their hands white-knuckled around religion and white-knuckled around living up to expectations and they are white-knuckled around control and they just won't let go and they've become their own savior. doesn't work out well. But what Jesus says and what the New Testament says is that he came along to set us free from that. To set us free from the tyranny of self-righteousness. To set us free from the tyranny of living up to expectations. To set us free from the tyranny of having to be the most moral people ever so that we can live up to God's expectations and, being, and be accepted by him. Paul will even go so far as to say this. And, and watch what he says about circumcision. This is great. But You know, sometimes I show you um, verses in the Bible that I, that, that I think are just funny. Okay, has anybody ever heard me do that? I'll show you this because it's funny. Okay, good. This is literally the funniest verse in all the Bible to me. Ready? It's coming. Paul says this, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He set you free from the law. He set you free from that tyranny. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, not just circumcision, the whole law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Grace doesn't make sense if you're just wanting to live up to expectations and become acceptable to God. Grace doesn't make any sense. You don't need it if you think you can be your own savior. I testify again to every man, Paul says, who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law, which you can't do. God set that bar. You can't live up. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, for you have fallen away from grace. There it is. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. And here it is, ready? For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. He's saying, look, it's not about whether you live up to all of the law or not the law, or, or live up to expectations or not live up to expectations. It's not about that. It's about Christ working through your heart in faith through love. Now, here's the funny verse. Ready? If you want to do the circumcision thing, let's do the circumcision thing, Paul says. For you were called 
Uh, but, so, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Look, if I'm preaching the law, why are people getting angry with me? And the same thing, they got angry with Jesus because he start, stopped preaching law and started preaching grace. In the case of the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Now, some of you know why that's funny. For the others, I'm going to explain it to you in the most PG terms. Um, for some of you, you might be angry that I do this, but look, this is what Paul says. This is what he wrote. I can't change the Greek. This is the Greek, okay? So what he's saying is, if you want to trust in circumcision, like, just go the whole way and cut it all the way off. It's just that crazy. You're laughing uncomfortably, but look, look what he's saying. I wish you would go the whole way and emasculate yourself, trusting in your own righteousness, trusting in your own goodness, trusting in you can live up to expectations. It's just that crazy. So just go the whole way and cut it off. Is that not the funniest verse you've ever heard in the Bible? I think it's great. Okay, for you are called, he says, to freedom, brothers, freedom in grace. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You're not free to go do whatever the heck you want to do. You're free to do what God called you to do. We'll talk about that in a minute. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's what Paul is saying. Grace sets us free. Grace sets us free. Now, Kevin talked about this last week, and I absolutely love the illustration that he used. It's disgusting but it's helpful. He talked about when he was vacuuming his house. You remember this last week? He's vacuuming his house and he vacs up some of his kid's hair and it gets caught in the vacuum. Is that gross or what? Like that's disgusting. Kevin, please. But it's really helpful. Listen, listen, it's really helpful because what he said was he's got to turn over the vacuum and he's got to set it free from what constrains it and entraps it. And once he sets the vacuum free, the vacuum is not free to do whatever the heck it wants to do. The vacuum is free to do what it was designed to do, pick up garbage and trash off the floor, pick up dust off the floor. He, he said, my kid, my, you know, Kayla asked him one time, God, or God, Kevin, dad, whatever she calls him. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe makes his kids call him God in the house. I don't know. Um, sometimes it just slips out. You know what I mean? Sometimes it just slips out. So she said, dad, is the vacuum free to make slime? No. Is the vacuum free to just do whatever it wants to do? No, the vacuum is free to do exactly what it was designed to do. See, this is what grace is. Grace, when God enters in by his grace and sets you free from being entrapped to those things and enslaved to those things, it sets you free to do all that you were designed to do. Now watch what grace sets us free from because we're going we're gonna to talk about what it sets us free from and then what it sets us free to do. So grace sets us free uh, from faith and relationships. Grace gives us freedom from faith in relationships. Now watch this. The Pharisees were under the impression that they were acceptable to God because they were descendants of Abraham. Did you see it? We come, that's our great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. And so because of that, we know that we're acceptable to God. So here's the deal. That doesn't always come up in church these days. I don't hear people come into my office and go, I'm a descendant of Abraham, therefore I'm acceptable to God. People don't say that very often. But you know what I do here sometimes? is that I come from a long line of missionaries and pastors. Or my family has been here at this church for a long time. Or I've, been, I've been part of a church-going family for a long time. But you know what happens when you put your faith in those relationships? They're going to fail you, and they're going to come apart at the seams. And grace enters into the picture and says, don't trust in your genetics, because your genetics has zero to do with whether you're acceptable to God. 
God says, enter into my family. I'll adopt you through my grace. You can trust in that single relationship instead of trusting in your heritage or your background. I see people do this all the time. This 2,000-year-old trick that the Pharisees pulled. It's not a new trick. People still pull it today. Uh, Grace sets us free from faith and religion. Grace sets us free from faith and religion. Again, the Pharisees had developed this elaborate religious system of things that they needed to live up to, the temple that they needed to go to, and all the things that they needed to do and say and whatever. And, and, and we do the same thing, you know. Uh, we, we, we think that long-term, consistent church attendance equals spiritual maturity. Let me assure you, it does not. We've, we've established this religious system. Like if I go to church every week, if I give money, if I'm part of a small group, if I do these things. I remember growing up, because uh, I grew up in, going to church, I, I grew up in these, these things called discipleship groups, like small groups of guys, six, eight, ten guys. And the first question we would ask each other every week was this. How many quiet times did you have this week? How many quiet times? How many quiet times? Which is a creepy word, by the way. I don't like that word. But what it meant was like, how often did you sit down by yourself, open your Bible, and read it and pray? How often? How many days? So it would be like, well, I, I did that three times this week. Okay, so God loves you like a three out of seven. <laughs> That's how we were made to feel. Or God loves you like, you know, like, I, like I, I sat down and, and did ten, ten. I did two on three different days which I'm hoping I can carry over into next week because I'll be on vacation. Like, you know, like what, what is this? And we, we, we create these elaborate religious systems in order to make ourselves feel like we're acceptable to God. But, but grace comes in and says, I just love you anyway. God comes in and I, I lavish unconditional love on you and I want to set you free from that tyranny. Come to me and have a relationship with me. Yeah, let's talk. Yeah, let's pray, but not so that you can meet those expectations. Grace sets us free from having to put our faith in morality. Grace sets us free from having to put our faith in morality. Look, understand what I'm saying to you. I'm not saying that grace gives you freedom from morality. Do you understand what I mean? Grace gives you freedom from morality. That's not what I'm saying. But when we start to put our trust in our own righteousness and our own goodness, how many people in the room would admit that I've made a couple of mistakes morally. Would you admit that? Okay, so putting your faith in your own morality is going to break down. It's already broken down. It will probably break down before you leave the parking lot today. But Jesus comes along and he says, I will give you my righteousness. I was perfect through my grace. I will impute that is what the $2 theological word. I will give it to you. You don't have to trust in your own righteousness. You can trust in mine. That's what grace does. Grace sets us free from having to put our faith in faith. I hear people do this all the time. People do this. I just, I just got to have faith. You just got to trust. And George Michael told us you got to have a faith, a faith, a faith, right? Like everybody wanted to put their faith in faith or their faith in kind of this pie in the sky thing. And we're not sure. Like put your faith in a person. Jesus who's gracious and kind, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We don't have to put our faith in faith. It's not a real thing anyway. So it sets us free from those things. It takes the bondage of that self-righteousness, which Jesus calls sin, by the way. It takes those constraints away. It sets us free from those things, but it sets us free to do some stuff too. Not just taking the hair out of the vacuum, but setting the vacuum free to do exactly what it was designed to do. So grace sets us free to be ourself. Grace sets us free to be ourself. Now watch this. God designed you just how he wanted you. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't give up early and go, ah, eh, it's good enough. He 
He designed you exactly how he wanted to, and then it wanted you. And then sin entered the picture, and the image of God in you has been marred. It's been skewed. It's been kind of warped and nudged with. But grace enters the picture and begins to right what has been wronged and restore the image of God in you such that you become all of who you were intended to be, free to be yourself. Not the, side, not the sin side of you, but, but the image of God side of you. Grace restores our identity. Wow, watch how Paul says it in Romans 8. He says, we know this, that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So creation was messed up. Creation was fractured because of sin and hope that the creation itself will be set, say this word with me, free, there we are, from its bondage to corruption, obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What he's saying is all of creation, cosmos, sun, moon, stars, rivers, lakes, everything is subjected to futility because of sin. And not just all of creation, but watch, more specifically, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. See, the image of God has been marred in you and marred in me, but we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption as sons for the complete redemption of our bodies. See, grace comes in and restores that image of God in us and makes us free to be ourselves. Free to be myself. Restored identity. So that I'm not working to live up to somebody's expectations or my own expectations or working to live up to what I perceive the expectations of God to be. But grace enters in and makes me completely free to be myself. Here's the second thing I want to tell you is that grace sets us free to love others completely. Grace sets us free to love others completely. When I originally put this sermon together, my point here was grace sets us free to love others. But I wanted to add this word completely here. And the reason I want to add that word completely is because I've heard people use this phrase sometime, um, hate the sin, love the sinner. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Look, I get what people are saying there, so I, I don't have anything against that language. What I do have something against, and what I think the Bible has something against, is using that phrase to excuse ourselves to mistreat people and judge people. Because I think that's what we're doing a lot of times when we say that. You know what, I, just, I love the sinner, but I just hate the sin. We just excuse ourselves from labeling people things and from calling them out on things and judging people. So, But we understand that God has poured his grace out onto us and poured his undeserved favor out onto us and lavished his love onto us despite our failings. It makes us free to love others completely. Look, and I want to back this up biblically because this is exactly what the Bible says in 1 John. Listen, it says, we love because he first loved us, Right? We love others because God first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? Liar. He's not mincing words here. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Look at this word repeated over and over in this passage. Love, 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 love. Some of you know there are different words for love in the original Greek. This one right here is agape. It's the unconditional love of God. So what John is saying is if you experience that unconditional love of God, that undeserved favor, that grace of God, you will, by design, extend that to others. In other words, grace makes you free to love others completely. It makes you free to love others completely. Now check this out. If you have difficulty extending grace to those who have wronged you, 
if there is someone in your life that you would run into on the street today and it would be a very uncomfortable and awkward situation because you've held a grudge. If there is someone in your life that you would pass judgment on or not want to love, and I'm not saying just like love from afar, I'm saying love up close, like welcome into your home, be complimentary, be kind, be gracious, be generous, and you're withholding grace from that individual, it might be because you haven't yet experienced the grace of God in your own life. Because grace extended is the evidence of grace received. Loving others completely, loving people around you well, is the evidence that you've experienced the love of God. The Bible teaches this all over. Do you remember the parable of the servants? One servant goes to his master and he says, I owe an impossible debt. Please forgive me. And the master says, you've got it. You're free and clear. Go. And he goes out the door and he immediately runs into another servant who owes him money. And he grabs him by the neck and begins to choke him. He doesn't extend grace. What Jesus is illustrating is once you've experienced grace, you will extend grace. And if you don't extend grace, it's probably because you haven't yet experienced it. And in Christian circles, I'm just going to be totally straight with you. We judge sins. We rate sins. And if it's a sin that's worse than some other sin, then we excuse ourselves from loving those individuals completely and extending grace to them. See, gossip, eh, that's not that big a deal. But if you're gay, wow, you know, man, I'm not going to be able to love you completely. And we do this all the time. See, for those who are living under law, they pass judgment, they look down upon, they condescend. For those who are living under grace... They readily extend it and love others completely. Let me give you one more and we'll be done. Grace gives us freedom to make mistakes. Grace gives us freedom to make mistakes. I just saw a number of people uh, look down to begin to write this down. Please do not write this down and then write down all the mistakes you'd like to make this week. Okay? This is not the point. Paul will say in Romans that that's absurd. How, we've been freed from sin. How can we live in it any longer? But this means that God's grace still reigns in your life, that he has redeemed you, he has changed your eternal destination, you will be with him for eternity, and he will make all things new, redeem, restore, reconcile all things unto himself. But not just that, from here until the end of your life, you may make a mistake or two. You may fail to do the good that God calls you to. You, you may actually sin and do something that he told you not to do. But what John says in his letter to the church is if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's not writing to non-Christians here. He's writing to Christians. He's assuming we're going to sin. And God's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from unrighteousness. In other words, it gives us freedom to make mistakes. Again, this doesn't mean freedom and license to sin and do whatever the heck we want to do. But it gives us freedom even in our own brokenness. And so let me get, put it, make it personal. And then we're going to close in song. For me, the older I get, the longer I work to live under grace and get out of the law, the longer that I work to remember that God loves me completely and that I don't need to live up to his expectations, the more comfortable I get with my own brokenness. Now, now listen to me. Not comfortable with my sin. And when I sin, oh, it's not that big a deal. Well, 
not that, not that. But the image of God in me is not perfect. And, And so as I remember the grace of God, when I make mistakes, when I sin, when, when the little quirks in my personality come out, I remember that God loves me anyway. Some of you are listening about that quirks in personality thing and thinking, oh man, I wish you weren't as comfortable with those things. Uh, change some of that stuff. So here, here's the deal, uh, that, that when we live in grace and when we accept Jesus' invitation to stop working to impress God and say, God already loves you completely. We can hear even the voice of our Heavenly Father saying to us, the same thing that I tell my daughter every night. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. No mistake you make, no failure, no success will change it. You are Kaya Elizabeth Sincere Cooper. You are my daughter. And nothing will ever change that. See, that's the love of our Heavenly Father. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's inviting us to. Is a Heavenly Father that says, there's nothing you could do to make me love you more. Nothing you could do to make me love you less. You are free from the law. Free from feeling like you got to live up to expectations. Free from putting faith in faith or faith in religion or faith in morality or faith in relationships. You're free to be yourself. Free to live under grace and free to love others well. Let's pray. We're going to close in song. God, thanks for the opportunity that we have to worship you today, for the opportunity that we have had to hear from your word today. God, we, um, we know that it's not our choice and our will that moves us towards grace, but it's your love actually that calls us into that. And so God, would you cause our hearts to be tender, cause our spirits to be willing and draw us into your presence even now as we sing about your greatness. Would you remind us of your unconditional love for us? In Christ's name, people of God said, and let's stand, sing in response.